Welcome back to Spoken Earth, an occasional series from Lacuna magazine featuring in-depth conversations with environmental thinkers, some of those people who are pushing the boundaries of how we think about the earth and how we live with it. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Max Isle, an associated researcher with the Tunisian Observatory for Food Sovereignty and the Environment, and author of the book, A People's Green New Deal. I don't think you would change the world without a romance of what the world could be, or maybe a romance of what the world used to be, right? A romance is only uh, disdained by people living in uh, steel cages. I've wanted to do a program on the Green New Deal for some time. Like some of those other environmental buzzwords, sustainable, net zero, it's become a phrase that is increasingly thrown around, with little interrogation to what it actually means. It harks back, intentionally, to Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, a series of social and economic reforms and public investments in the US in the 1930s, as a means of tackling the legacy of the Great Depression. The Green New Deal is an idea that's been around since the early 2000s, but only really took off when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey tried to get legislation through the Senate in 2019. Since then, Green New Deals have popped up everywhere. In the UK, Labour has committed to one. There were versions in Canada, Australia, South Korea and the EU. And as with the original New Deal, Green New Deals seek to restructure and reinvigorate the economy and society, but while also driving down carbon emissions. Since Covid, Green New Deals have taken on a renewed urgency and relevance, as countries around the world have looked at how to rebuild their economies, with or without a sustainable future at their heart. But, argues Max Isle in his recent book, A People's Green New Deal, not all Green New Deals are equal. And none of them are currently pushing what is necessary to truly enact a deal for people, one that seeks equally to transform the lives of those in the global south, and one that seeks to defeat capitalism as the root cause of global injustice and environmental degradation. A true eco-socialism, Isle argues, is still a long way from anything that is being talked about in mainstream politics in the West. And if we truly care about the transformation of society, not only something that tackles carbon emissions, but continues to perpetuate the same inequalities, then this should concern us deeply. In the first pages of his book, he sets out a version of the Green New Deal that would do little to trouble Jeff Bezos, and this, he says, is meaningless. If we care about the well-being of the planet and of all the people on it, we need to be pushing for something far more radical than is currently under discussion. It's a troubling, passionate read in its entirety, something that makes it abundantly clear how far we still have to go. We sat down for a couple of hours to discuss how Green New Deals are currently failing and what proposals for a true eco-socialism might look like. I started off by asking him how that term, the Green New Deal, came to be coined. So uh, the phrase the Green New Deal actually was launched into the stratosphere by none other than Thomas Friedman, who of course had a vision of and still has a vision of the world insofar as his glasses aren't covered with American flags, uh, that is uh, quite discordant from the current discourse around uh, the Green New Deal. So it was a plan for explicit American uh, nationalist technological industrial resurgence. And this was uh, something that emerged probably as a kind of forerunner of uh, the Obama campaign, which in fact uh, had its own green plan with uh, some measure of investments in renewable energy. 
now, then uh, the Green New Deal kind of spiraled in uh, out through a, a series of somewhat more progressive institutions that went through the UN system. And since then, it was taken up by the Green Party in the United States, which uh, has put forward a series of quite radical Green New Deals, looking much more like eco-socialism. And then there have been uh, further Green New Deals starting to emerge in 2018, 2019, with the emergence of the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez campaign, which put forward a kind of anti-racist, slightly socially redistributive plan, also for industrial resurgence. In a way, not in some ways very different, in some ways not very different at all from what Thomas Friedman actually was proposing with uh, Claus Baird and teeth dripping in 2007, right? Now, of course, the Green New Deal was tapping into several other uh, ideological strands, right? I mean, one of those strands, of course, is the the New Deal itself and this kind of ambition for uh, government-led industrial resurgence of uh, the domestic industrial plan. So it was very much tapping into that. And it was one of several resolutions or solutions or uh, proposed uh, solutions in order to deal with a kind of crisis in uh, U.S. capitalism, U.S. hegemony, and so forth, right? Which we see in the, these kind of recurrent crises that are uh, taking on an unusual scale within uh, the world system, including the current uh, wars going on today, where uh, it's clear the U.S. cannot simply have its way, right? Is there something in that usage of New Deal that's meant to have that, I don't know, nationalist nostalgia? I mean, that's a deliberate phrasing, right? Taking that New Deal term. Of course, it's drawing on ideologically constructed nostalgia for what people imagined the 1930s was, right? I mean, the 1930s and the 1940s were not, in fact, how they are presented to be. You can, it's very, by now, well-established historical sociological literature like that of Francis Fox Piven. And uh, from the bottom up, showing that, of course, the, the, the New Deal was the fruit of uh, poor people's movements, including a high level of communist organizing amongst poor people. And this was an alternative logic, an alternative project, which people were aware of in the United States. So all of it, of course, now the, the resurrection of the Green New Deal relies, of course, on obscuring what is by now uh, well-established, at least at the empirical and analytical level, a revisionist historiography of what actually happened and saying, okay, no, let us go back to this saccharine-coded vision or saccharine-coded uh, candy about what the, the past was and the, what the future could be. Of course, this is naturally what Ocasio-Cortez uh, was drawing upon. This by itself is not the ultimate problem. I mean, I think the ultimate problem is what are the actual policies being advocated? And it is this that despite the gestures and, and uh, sparklings with the anti-racist uh, rhetoric within uh, both Ocasio-Cortez as a public figure and also the actual policy of the Green New Deal as it was actually written, that is the actual non-binding draft legislation, which of course was totally undiscussed in the U.S. public sphere, including the left public sphere, uh, after this was released. You know, this is essentially a nationalist vision, right? There is no mention of the U.S. military. There's no mention of the U.S. historic responsibility for the destruction and decolonization of the atmosphere. There's no reference to the global justice movement, which was vibrant, brilliant, uh, uh, iridescent, you know, until 2010, 2011, 2012. But uh, it it explicitly called for the U.S. to kind of reachieve industrial supremacy through the promotion of uh, clean tech export through uh, state, corporate, community partnerships. This is a nationalist vision, right? This is. And, um, you know, just because Ocasio-Cortez is uh, 
woman of Puerto Rican ancestry does not not make it a nationalist vision, right? There's a nationalist vision is, is about what the policies being advocated, even more to the point, the policies not being advocated, right? And, uh, you know, unless one explicitly ruptures with the foreign policy of American nationalism, which is to say imperialism, uh, then you're not going to rupture with that. You're not going to rupture with the ideology. You're not going to rupture with the entire system of accumulation with which it's bound, right? You, you have to mention it. And if you don't mention it, that's a choice. And then if it's a choice, it's a choice. And then it's clear what the politics are that are at stake. And then it's like, what are we going to do with those politics? And who are we? And are we people who, who want to live in an imperialized world or not, right? You were saying a kind of 2010, 2011, sort of the peak of that global justice movement, you contrast that Green New Deal with the, the documents that came out of Cochabamba, which was a kind of radically different version of how the future the future could look. Absolutely. So there's two things that are critical there. I mean, there's the process, the worldwide cycle of mobilization, which led up to Cochabamba. And then there's the process of demobilization uh, and substitution, which followed Cochabamba. In fact, neither of those processes are particularly well known. I myself lived through those processes. You know, it had a greater or lesser connection to even pre-2001. There was the Durban process that was condemning racism and advocating for reparations on a world scale. Then there was the huge mobilizations against the war on Iraq, which were were quite large on a global scale. There were the series of uh, summits that were fiercely protested by the what was called the the alter globalization in Europe and the anti globalization movement in the U.S. There were all these strands, and one can uh, of course take issue both ideologically and organizationally with what was happening. But there was a, an actual process of uh, anti systemic uh, resistance, which of course there's has kind of been totally brushed under the table, right? And it was it was not only that, but also in Latin, what was happening in Latin America at that point was kind of like a, a nova, right? I mean, they were putting socialism back on the agenda, with, both within the continent and on an, in a world scale, right? I mean, there was a constellation of uh, leftist governments of various stripes, some of them discursively very, 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 very radical, right? Although... Uh, materially not necessarily breaking with the existing distribution of social power within their societies, but they were talking on a world stage, fiercely attacking U.S. imperialism, fiercely talking about socialism, talking about worldwide climate justice. And it was these states that put up the international plane level resistance to the imposition of the Copenhagen Accords, right, which uh, were just fiercely, they were despised by those uh, third world governments that had not been co-opted or bought out by the United States and and NATO and the EU and so forth, right? And it was that that led to the Cochabamba People's Agreement, which had a very large buy-in. In fact, I always uh, like to bring this up, is that Naomi Klein categorically endorsed the the Cochabamba People's Agreement. Categorically. She said it's the most radical and, and the most meaningful and the most effective, I'm paraphrasing, agreement that thus far been put forth. She wrote this in The Nation magazine. I mean, where has that discourse been in the Nation magazine since then, right? So this is, I mean, the the discourse in a magazine like the Nation is an effect of the level of popular mobilization. It's not a cause of it, right? So this is an effect of the level of worldwide popular mobilization that this actually could be said. And this was a call for extremely radical transformations in the global system. I mean, they called for the comprehensive demilitarization and redirection of northern military budgets, especially that of the United States. And they linked this to a call 
for comprehensive climate debt repayments, which uh, to the order of 6% of GMP per year, which for the U.S. comes to about $1.2 trillion, which is about the U.S. military budget. And they said it quite explicitly, the messaging was, you have this amount of resources for your military to break the world, but you don't have $1.2 trillion a year in order to decolonize the atmosphere and ensure a just transition for global humanity. So they basically linked this process of the destruction of the Pentagon system, the demilitarization of the world system with the issue of climate justice and climate debt. Now, of course, this would have required uh, essentially a revolution in the global north in order to force governments to either shift global terms of trade, multilateral debt cancellation, technology transfer, or more to the point, uh, open technology, the removal of patent structures. But all of this was in the discussion. Uh, within the global justice movement and the global climate justice movement at that time. I mean, I've done some interviews uh, with with people off the record where, where they discussed it. They said, yes, it was just the complete common sense of the climate justice movement, that if you want a just global transition, you need to do something about the colonial legacy and specifically the ecological component uh, of the colonial legacy. So including uh, reparations and so forth. Um, and of course, at the more technical level, this included uh, calls for appropriate technology, food sovereignty, and calls for the, like I said, the removal of patent protection on uh, the necessary clean technology for a just transition to assist the global South countries to leapfrog over the dirty industrial pattern and path of energy development, which had occurred in Europe, in the United States, and so forth. So all of this was on the table. Was the level of organization high enough to achieve it? Of course not. Was the ideological uh, programming clear enough? Well, of course not. When, uh, you know, rarely is it ever. But be that as it may, right, this was a good initiative. This was a good program. This was a good movement in history, right? History was moving in a good direction. And then 2011 hit, right? And uh, 2012 hit. Um, and, and like, where did it go? I mean, no one talks about it, right? But in fact, for that to suddenly be removed from st the, the center stage and for a lot of that energy to be demobilized and redirected, right, that happens in history, right? It doesn't just happen. Uh, it's not like a, a natural entropic process or stuff just disappears. People talk about other things, right? No, like um, his, history is moving, right? Um, and people are directing how history is moving. So this remains to be written. I mean, this is a very serious uh, portion of our modern history. And it is very poorly known about, right? And suddenly the Latin American governments were guilty of extractivism. Suddenly there's the delegitimization of a lot of the Latin American governments and increasing splits between them. Uh, suddenly there's wars cascading across the Arab region that are being uh, launched by the, the U.S. and uh, its uh, satrapies and the Khalij and the Gulf Arab states with assistance of the EU, right? And all, all of this is wiped out, right? And this is against this tableau, against this background, against this kind of hellscape, right? To be very frank, right? I mean, looking at it from, you know, you have total collapse of social reproduction in a place like Tunisia, and Tunisia is very well off compared to Syria and Yemen or Gaza. Against this real uh, hellscape, then you have the emergence of uh, this very much more moderate call for, for a Green New Deal, uh, which was immediately cast or presented or painted or reshaped as a call for eco-socialism, right? Even though it was a much more moderate proposal by far than what was emerging about 10 years previously, right? And this, to me, was very shocking. I was thinking, okay, this is not eco-socialism. All the tragedies associated with industrialization and the crimes committed by capitalist industrialization and fixing all of these things and then also figuring out how to sustainably uh, develop the resources, the 
physical capital of humanity, the technological infrastructure, figuring out how to have socially interdependent, non-exploitative, non-oppressive world that's permanently socially sustainable, while at the same time helping the South to the degree possible, uh, actually specifically uh, advance its developmental level. So especially people there can have uh, good lives as well. I mean, that's eco-socialism. It's not idiosyncratic definition that I have concocted from some kind of uh, dream world, right? I mean, these are what these are what the terms like eco-socialism mean. And that's, you know, that's just very distinct from what Ocasio-Cortez was presenting in 2019. Mm-hmm. And then, as you say, and then supported by people like Naomi Klein as well, who once supported the Gotchabamba Agreement, you, know, you sort of make this point that it's sort of muddying the waters and, and, and making it very hard to know what a true eco-socialism is if these things are then getting held up to stand in for eco-socialism. And and you keep coming back to this word of, of feasibility, that maybe these watered down proposals are there because they appear more more feasible. And to be hampered by this idea of feasibility means the sort of horizons that we're able to set ourselves become extremely limited. Absolutely. So this mantra or this kind of magic incantation of feasibility is really smuggling in a huge number of assumptions about what the world is now, how the world changed in the past, and how the world could possibly change going into the future, right? And it, and it does so in the, in the service, whether intentional or through resignation, of actually limiting the types of changes that are indeed possible. How does change happen, right? How does the world change? It doesn't change because someone says, well, this is what I think is feasible at a given moment. The world never changed that way. I mean, that's not how women achieve the right to vote. This is not how national liberation happened, how uh, Black people achieved civil rights in the United States. This is not how the Bolsheviks and uh, the the Chinese carried out communist revolutions. Uh, This is not how the Cochabamba People's Accords happened. This is not how change happens. Change does not happen by people saying, okay, this is what could be feasible in the current political environment. Actually, it usually comes from someone saying, okay, I totally reject the current way things are. I categorically reject it. And I have a radical program for a very different world that is the world I and my comrades and colleagues and friends and uh, family and people and fellow working class people. Usually, this is the world we want to see. And this is how we're going to organize to get it. Now, of course, two things can happen, right? Either one, that pressure leads to the existing system uh, accommodating partially those demands to try to declaw it, or you actually have a successful revolution and those forces take power and then really change the world and really shake things up, right? Those are more or less the, the reformer versus radical options. Now, none of that has any relationship to this current discourse, this current snake oil, in fact, of feasibility, right? So the feasibility, in fact, in especially in the U.S. context, that certain political strategies are having their political rationality kind of implanted and posited as correct a priori, right? In advance of kind of a rational consideration of those strategies. So those political strategies that are then linked to reformist uh, are deeply reformist in the case of Ocasio-Cortez political programs are then said as feasible. But was Corbyn's plan that end up being feasible? I mean, was Bert, did Bernie Sanders, who 
I want to always insist was far to the left of uh, Ocasio-Cortez, to be sure, right? Was he, was his program and struggle feasible? Was the initial program before they surrendered um, and placated the EU of Syriza uh, feasible, right? No, history told us that they weren't feasible. They were actually savagely crushed. So they were not feasible. So, you know, feasibility is brought into being by a struggle that opens the window of the possible, right? Um, so then the question is, how do we determine what that actual struggle looks like and whose interests are represented when we actually constitute that struggle? Is it going to be a program that represents the interests of the great majority of the planet, which does not own property, right? Or is it going to be a program which represents say, the interests of lower middle class people in Europe and the United States and totally ignores the rest of the world, which program is it going to be that actually becomes the left program? Because there's an argument about left-wing politics, right? You can have a radical, a real radical program, or you can have what is basically a reformist program that is cast by its actual vendors, the people selling it as the left-wing of the possible. And they say, okay, hi, uh, I'm here to offer you the left-wing of the possible. Would you like it? So it emerges in history, right? This issue of pragmatism does not uh, not emerge in a vacuum. What's feasible, right? What's feasible right now is that like the world is having a huge meltdown, right? On a world scale, people are suffering. If you want to collapse feasibility into what like seems likely on an immediate basis, which then is collapsed into what is actually happening, well, yeah, things are really shitty. That's feasible, right? Tomorrow they're likely to be shitty too, unless there's a reasonable strategy to actually make them not shitty and make them not shitty for as many people as possible. You're listening to Spoken Earth with me, Adam Weymouth, in conversation with agrarian sociologist Max Isle. Just days before we spoke, the new IPCC report had been released, with the top line that emissions need to peak by 2025 in just three years. I asked him how that sense of what is feasible becomes so much more suffocated with that added pressure of time slipping away. You know, people say there's only X number of years. Now, there's truth and untruth to this. The truth is this question of feedback effects. Feedback effects meaning basically that they, there could be uh, large-scale natural processes that have been set in motion by uh, the human emissions of carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide equivalent greenhouse gases that could radically uh, shift the equilibrium of the climate system, the earth system, um, and what is passed for human civilization, right? But this sense of collapse, I mean, this sense of sharp disequilibria in our social and ecological systems are kind of outside our capacity to do that much about. They could be in motion already, right? And if they are in motion already, then, of course, it would be good to uh, stop the emissions of greenhouse gases as soon as possible. But who should pay for the stopping of emissions, right? Who should suffer? I mean, should the South still have a right to develop, right? I mean, these questions are always political from the outset, right? Anyone who's trying to shortcut the actual political determinations is is selling uh, false coin, right? Because it's always, okay, well, why can't we do a technology transfer loosen these patents? And people say there's no time. It's like, well, what does it mean that there's no time, right? If you admit that you're not in control of history, then okay, then just don't be involved in politics. That's okay. But if we want to be involved in politics to make it a historical process that leads to a, 
a liberation for every suffering person on the planet. That's one aspect of it, right? This this aspect of the emergency, right? And this the, the aspect of emergency is also controlled from the top down, right? People are like, there's an emergency going on. Well, who has power in the current context to control the terms of a resolution to the emergency is, of course, the ruling class, right? I mean, they have control over the political apparatus. They have control over economic levers. They have control over the planning apparatus. They have control over investment decisions. So when they call it an emergency, they're looking for justification for the policies that they want to carry out in order to deal in however way they find appropriate with the climate crisis. Okay. Uh, this is a way of looking at emergencies. It's not conducive to the creation of an independent, autonomous, self-determined sphere of political action that is proceeding according to its own values and its own evaluation strategy. Now, that's that's that was a bit long-winded, so I'm sorry for that. But there's the other aspect of emergency. Emergency for who, right? I mean, I live in Tunisia. Tunisia is in a state of emergency, right? There are uh, eight or nine percent uh, 10% yearly inflation with frozen wages. And the minimum salary in Tunisia is $160 a month, okay? And the the statistical agencies and so forth estimate that the minimum required for a family of four to live decently in Tunisia, given existing price level, is $1,000 a month, right, for a family, okay? So uh, two minimum wages are covering, you know, a third of what is estimated as... The minimum for uh, for a decent life. So the to be more concrete, I mean, people are are begging on the streets, and the middle class and the lower middle class subsists on bread, onion, soy oil. There's more and more robbery. I mean, people young and middle aged are absolutely hopeless. They say there is no future in Tunisia. This includes highly trained people like doctors, right? They all want to go to Europe. In fact. So that is a social catastrophe. And again, uh, this is Tunisia being much better off, I hate to say it, than, than Yemen or Syria, right? Because it, it's still potentially in control of its fate. And when we link that, think about that in relation to the climate crisis, there's now a collapse of olive agriculture in the south of the country due to insufficient uh, water over the past couple of years. I mean, the olive trees uh, are, are not producing olives. I mean, you have, uh, it is the ancestral production method of the Tunisian South. The olives are a very good dryland crop, do very well in semi-arid temperatures, but they don't do well if uh, the temperature uh, precipitation patterns are so irregular that they're not getting water anymore. Um, and of course, they get supplementary irrigation, but it's not enough, right? And not everyone can do it adequately. Uh, and and you have, you're having crop failures across the Tunisian South. I mean, you're having a Tunisian South without olives. People can only live there anymore with injections uh, of external capital. Right. Actually, it's been the case for a while. And meanwhile, temperatures in the center of the country, south and southeast, were reaching, I think, 130 degrees uh, last summer. And I'm not talking here about Yemen, right, which has seen 450,000 people die. And this is a, a U.S.-U.K. war persecuted against the people of Yemen, right, for not falling into line behind uh, the agenda. Where is their emergency in this discussion of climate, right? Does their emergency count, too? Uh, you know, and this isn't to be plaintive, and this isn't to guilt people. It's to understand that the perception of emergency, we need to take a step back and say, okay, what is this state of emergency, right? And who, for whom is the world a permanent state of emergency and a permanent crisis of social reproduction, which is linked to a constellation of causes, including wars, including, of course, climate, including just the workaday uh, barbarities of, of capitalism and uh, imperialism working through the market mechanisms of, uh, of looting and debt and uneven exchange and so forth. 
you know, for whom is the emergency, right? And then it, once we understand that, then we can say, okay, well, we need a we need a broader notion of emergency to uh, forge a broader notion of resolution that does not shortcut politics. Otherwise, we have a climate politics that kind of says, well, doesn't matter. We're not. We're just not engaging with what's going on in Tunisia and and Yemen. We're just not dealing with that. And it's like. That's not a climate politics I want to be part of. It's also not a climate politics that you're going to get buy-in from the global south about for a global problem, right? It's a global problem. It's not a problem that can be resolved by one country. And it's also a problem that's going to alienate a lot of the most politically uh, sophisticated and advanced people or, uh, and aware people in the United States itself or in UK itself who may have family in those countries, or if not, may be aware of what's going on in those countries. And they're going to be like, well, what is this? You're clearly using climate as a way to justify uh, ignoring the state of emergency for a huge portion of humanity. Like, what is this green politics? It's an excuse for. So it's very uh, it's destructive to a, a real radical program on social change to not inquire deeply into what we mean when we discuss emergency. Right. And I think that's the point, isn't it? If we were going to you know, sort of hypothetically stop climate change tomorrow, if we were going to enact some of these, what was the phrase you use, the great transition model and to replace every single internal combustion engine with an electric car and replace half the world and set that aside for nature that doesn't include people and, and all these things, not, not only is it not going to have the desired effect globally, it's not even going to help the North in truly addressing the problem of climate change long term. What's relevant there, I mean, those are extremely reactionary programs for dealing with climate transformation, right? I mean, those, to the extent that any of them are at all serious uh, in terms of dealing with the climate at all, either one, they're going to do it by exporting the cost onto the majority of humanity. I mean, this is why suddenly there's like this absolutely horrific discussion about birth rates in Africa, right? Very much... Uh, entering the the liberal public sphere, there's this question of population again. And when you hear population, it's like what Fanon said about culture, you reach for your knife, right? It's time to change the channel uh, because it just population is not an issue, especially global South population. Now, these plans, I mean, are not only incapable of doing and, and not meant to do anything about the crisis of social reproduction or social well-being in the North or in the South. But in fact, they're, they're sure to actually worsen, maybe not the climate crisis, maybe the climate crisis, but they're going to kind of export the crises of climate onto uh, other aspects of social life and other aspects of kind of our socio-ecologies or our human relationships with the natural world. Right? Uh, for example, to the extent that they really plan on a full ramp up of renewables, um, which is not currently on the agenda. But even supposing uh, it's this full top-down renewables transition, I mean, be heavy on hydro, it'll be heavy on uh, wind, and it'll be heavy on solar. Now, those technologies are all absolutely critical for a transition to sustainable energy system, of course. But those technologies, first of all, themselves have intrinsic ecological costs, right? Um, which doesn't mean they shouldn't be implemented. It means their implementation is, first of all, is socially and ecologically freighted. And those considerations, first of all, won't be taken into consideration uh, by the great transition ideologues and planners. Could be hugely harmful. I mean, the amount of resource extraction you need in terms of battery storage, uh, lithium, 
nickel, uh, copper, um, the waste, which comes from solar panels, where you site solar panels and the biodiversity impacts of solar panels, big dams, which are just absolutely actually catastrophic. You know, all of these ways of doing things which are being planned are all, all ways that uh, will likely worsen other aspects of the ecological crisis, even if they deal with the question of emissions in the short, medium, or even long term, right? Um, and that is because the people planning them are pathological actors who don't have a way of uh, addressing biodiversity outside of the its uh, value for the process of accumulation on a world scale, right? I mean, this is what's being talked about in this whole discussion of the financialization of nature. I mean, it is about finding uh, the potential value for these ecosystems bundles. And if you can't find a value on it, then under this system, this law of value, then it has no value and therefore you can destroy it, right? Now, this, this is what's being planned in these so-called great transition debates, right? It would be absolutely catastrophic. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what a People's Green New Deal would look like, what that alternative would look like, you know, which is the second half of your book. And I think there's, you know, there's various aspects to look at, but maybe we could start by talking about this idea of, of degrowth, which in a mainstream way gets such bad press and gets labelled as a kind of back to the cave or austerity. But the way that you describe it makes degrowth actually seem like something that's very positive and, and, and very inspiring and fundamentally essential as, as an antidote to capitalism. Right. I think in, in recent days, uh, degrowth is in some ways more popular than uh, eco-socialism as a way of resolving the climate crisis, um, even though a lot of degrowthers probably identify as eco-socialists, uh, although I don't know if that would be a majority of them. Now, I myself don't identify as a degrowther, but I, uh, I'm kind of a, a fellow traveler and I appreciate a lot of the intellectual work that they're doing. The degrowthers are making very clear these days without... Um, any equivocation, that the program is about degrowth of socially harmful sectors and possible qualitative growth that is uh, development of socially useful sectors. And they make this very clear, right? This is the messaging. And I think this messaging is critical. I mean, it's about growth of things like permanently sustainable food production. And it is about growth of municipal transport infrastructure and uh, mass transit systems and uh, public transport systems between cities. Um, it is about growth of renewable energy. It is about degrowth of pesticide factories. It is about degrowth of the automobile industry. And it is about degrowth of nuclear weapons. Um, and it is about uh, degrowth of... Uh, systems of production, like for phones, which rely on the planned obsolescence or the planned uh, breaking, in essence, of the, these consumer products to tie people into this uh, commodity consumption uh, capitalist economy to the great benefit of uh, the ruling class and the, the process of world accumulation. So on this point, I think the degrowth people are very, very clear about the fact that some sectors need to degrow and other sectors need to grow. So I'm on board with this, right? Now, degrowth is a northern movement. And so it can be often freighted with 
all the pathologies of Northern progressivism. I mean, often, but not always, degrowth is talking about demilitarization, right? But actually, that needs to be a central plank of degrowth. I mean, that is the key thing to degrow, is the Northern military complex. Southern militaries are an entirely different story. I don't, I don't want Southern militaries to degrow until the Northern militaries have degrowth, right? Like, it's like basic, it's common sense. Otherwise, it'd be an absolute catastrophe, right? Now, this, this should be one of the primary selling points. And this is how you build a fundamental political alliance between the people who are much more focused on things like war, sovereignty, imperialism, uh, war and peace, uh, and the use of social resources for war and peace, and whether or not the U.S. and the EU should be interfering in the affairs of other states. There's a lot of people, right? There's a lot of people are interested in these things and are concerned about why there is so much interference from the North and the South. They might not have a theory about it, but a lot of them do, of course, but they're concerned about it and don't like it particularly and may engage in poor uh, comprehension of why it happens. Now, this is should be a fundamental ally of anyone interested in the ecology, but it's not foregrounded enough in the New Deal, in the, in the degrowth discourse. And, and just just while we're on that, just just spell that out a bit more. Why, why is that demilitarization so important in terms of talking about climate change and ecology as well? I mean, demilitarization is important, first of all, because the military purely as a productive sector is uh, one of the largest polluters in the world. And I think it's 37th or 38th largest polluter. If you took the largest CO2 emitter, if you took just the North American uh, U.S. Pentagon complex, much larger on a global scale. And furthermore, if you actually include Southern uh, emissions related to their own militaries, which are essentially defensive, then it would be even more, right? So this is just a very low-hanging fruit from a kind of rational perspective, right? Suppose we have a certain amount of carbon dioxide, right, uh, that can be safely emitted to avoid tipping points. From a kind of uh, popular ecological perspective, we should be using that carbon budget and the industrial plant to which it's bound to produce things like trains and solar panels and wind turbines, and for that matter, uh, hospitals and uh, vaccines and so forth. And, uh, and why not dirigibles and uh, high-speed blimps and what have you. Uh, and we should not be using it for the military. I mean, there's, it cannot be justified from a popular perspective, right? This is a reason it's absolutely central. Now, it's also absolutely central from a broader political perspective, which is also very often uh, submerged in these debates, unfortunately, which is that the countries of the South have to determine and shape the reconstitution of their patterns of industrial and agricultural production on a sovereign and independent basis, right? This cannot be imposed upon. People uh, will sometimes say that these Southern uh, radical countries haven't gone far enough in terms of changing the distribution of property, which is another way of saying that they're politi- politically, they've been somewhat pragmatic. They're pragmatic, not because they're being opportunist or reformist per se, but because they're often scared of intervention, right? Because what happens? What happens if you radically change your productive structure over the last 50 years? We know very well what happens. I mean, the entire history of U.S. intervention in the Cold War era is basically a war against agrarian reform, against radical agrarian reform, right? I mean, they considered Syria 
when it uh, started to really level its uh, landlord class in the mid 60s. You know, there are uh, reports of U.S. Uh, military and diplomatic attaches being like, oh, these Syrians are creating a little Cuba out here. Right. <laughs> that was the fear. Right. And they were terrified. I mean, it was only after the Cuban Revolution that the U.S. started to carry out these kind of uh, anticipatory or prophylactic uh, medium farmer agrarian reforms, including through the Alliance for Progress in Latin America, um, even while it was started to carry out basically military coup d'etat against governments that were advocating for more radical agrarian reforms like that of uh, Joao Goulart and, and the Peasant Leagues in Brazil. I mean, that's why there was a military coup backed by the U.S. in Brazil in 1964 is because there was a threat of a bottom-up a popularly organized initiative to radically redistribute the land and carry out uh, the shattering of the latifundia structure, which had been inherited from uh, mercantilist colonialism, right? Which are the countries considered over the last 20 years radical changes in their agrarian structure actually carried out changes? Ecuador, Venezuela, Bolivia, Nepal, Zimbabwe, right? Now, what has happened to those countries? Venezuela suffered under militaries, U.S.-linked paramilitaries infiltrating from the U.S. client state Colombia, going in and ripping apart the peasant movements in the, in the western half of Venezuela, right, with hundreds of peasant assassinations. I mean, how can you have an agrarian reform without if all your leading peasant activists are getting murdered by the U.S., right? Of course, the government in Venezuela is going to end up being more reformist and less radical and all these uh, things it's tarred with. If those pushing for a more radical class struggle approach to social transformation are having their lives extinguished by U.S.-backed uh, proxies that the U.S. left is not doing anything to disarm, right? I mean, this is just the most basic common sense, right? Or like the U.S., you know, the Bolivian process. I mean, there was a coup, in, an attempted coup in 2008, and a successful coup uh, a decade later, right? I mean, this, even though, of course, we know very well the Bolivian government did not go nearly far enough in terms of agrarian redistribution, and it didn't go far enough against the specter of a radical uh, attack on its sovereignty by the U.S. and its local uh, allies, especially in Santa Cruz. Now, these processes have to be allowed to play out according to their own internal logic. Now, how is that linked to ecology? If those countries put in place popular ecological shifts that actually said, okay, we are going to be primarily focused on protecting our natural resources, protecting biodiversity, while ensuring that our national production is being used for the benefit of our working classes. Is the US and the EU going to allow this? I mean, look at how much industrial offshoring occurs in the periphery. I mean, Tunisia is just filled to the brim with industrial offshoring from Europe. Right. And with massive, massive ecological damage. I mean, if Tunisia takes steps to do that, this will represent infringements on the current systems of uh, accumulation and also the process of the externalization of social and ecological costs. Right. Which are part and parcel of uh, the accumulation process in the poor. Right. And this is something that's so frequently removed from the conversation of ecology in the global north, even on the radical left. And people are like, well, Actually, the problem of ecological production in countries like Venezuela and Bolivia is extractivism. That is, they are responsible for uh, having a pattern of production that remains primary export dependent and is not sufficiently redistributive. Well, 
this is kind of tautology. Like, of course, they're dep- they have those problems, right? I mean, and how are they going to not have those problems? And how can people in the North help them not have those problems? Well, the major way is by minding our own business and not going into those countries, which actually means an affirmative program to prevent the intervention and uh, malfeasance of the northern countries in those southern countries' business, right? I mean, it's not, a, it's not a question of disregarding what they do or not being in solidarity with the poorest people in those countries. It's a question of the concrete mechanism through which we do so towards identifying that everyone has to walk their own path to this shared horizon of people's Green New Deal say, right? I mean, this is not denying what's going on in those countries that uh, on a normative basis is distasteful. It's about understanding what we can do to change it from where we are, from where we're politically situated. And this is so absent uh, across the entire spectrum of Green New Deal proposals in my consideration. You're listening to Spoken Earth in conversation with Max Isle. One key component of his People's Green New Deal is the growing conversation around climate reparations as part of a wider conversation about reparations to address the colonial legacy. It's about how the atmospheric commons has been polluted by the West during its centuries of growth and industrialization, how that pollution is disproportionately affecting the developing world, and how reparations need to be made to redress that. I asked Max to explain those ideas a little more. The US, the EU, um, Japan, as part of their development path, they had, in effect, usurped this commons, right? They had uh, basically turned the commons, which is the atmospheric space for safe CO carbon dioxide emissions, they have turned that into a site for their own pollution, which is another way of saying that they had asserted property rights to it. And they had done so on an illegitimate basis and without the consent of those who had their own property rights to that and their own right, theoretically, to emit a certain amount of carbon dioxide waste into the atmosphere as part of a cheap development path. So what now, right? Well, what now is that these countries then and are still actually demanding climate financing and climate debt in order to carry out just transitions domestically. And this is why they're demanding $1.2 trillion from uh, the U.S., uh, $3.2 trillion from the OECD countries on the whole per annum uh, on an indefinite basis, conceived only as a portion of the broader ecological debt, because, of course, the process of capitalist industrialization in the, in the North led to damages also to the broader ecology. And this, in turn, conceived only as a portion of the broader colonial debt, which uh, is, in a sense, incalculable, right? And so, these are ways of talking about uh, the abolition of an unequal world system, right? This is why, for example, Bernie Sanders, who I consider myself far to the left of Bernie Sanders, but Bernie Sanders was advocating uh, for, I think, uh, $200 billion, I believe, to go into the uh, climate fund uh, towards the needs for a just transition of the third world. Now, was $200 billion over a period of 10 years enough? No, it was a drop in the bucket. But that proposal obviously had a widespread support on the Western left, which overwhelmingly was backing Bernie Sanders, right? Now, there's no reason why that impulse could not be broadened out and become actually something that would be part of a broader plank in a broader program for social transformation. I absolutely do not believe that people in the North would not sign up for that. 
I think people in the North won't sign up for it if they're told that it would mean uh, income deflation, it would mean their immiseration, it would mean the destruction of the future for their children. No, then they won't sign up for it. Then people won't sign up for it. Makes sense. But I do think I do think people will sign up for it if it's braided into a program for the domestic reconstruction and reconstitution of uh, the social system, the ecological system, uh, the industrial system, the agricultural system. And I think I think people could be on board for climate debt and uh, understanding that you have capital transfers and understanding that it's a just thing to lift, uh, to have joint knowledge commons where every all the scientists of the world can produce knowledge that is, and engineers of the world can produce knowledge that's used for the betterment of humanity. And I suppose when you see the discourse around other reparations around slavery and, and there is a kind of big public support for these sorts of things. Yeah, of course. I mean, they're, it's very popular to do something about them, understandably, right? People are not animals, right? I mean, uh, clearly not, right? We just can't tell, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, but this is like why we're human beings and we understand, okay, oh, wow, we did something wrong. Let us see how we can try and fix it, right? This is actually a very normal instinct that people are like, oh, but that's not pragmatic. That's not pragmatic, huh? Why not? Who decided? Who, who made the rule it's not pragmatic? <laughs> like, it's very strange, actually, if you think about it. Yeah, and when you frame it in that way, you write is it, is that sort of pragmatism being that kind of actually a powerful counterinsurgency towards what is possible, it, it really frames it in a different way. Well, one of the bits that's kind of most inspiring in the book is the chapter on agriculture and agroecology and just the sheer scale and the potential for fixing so many ills through starting to think about farming in a different way. Do you want to, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I don't think you change the world without a romance of what the world could be, or maybe a romance of what the world used to be, right? A romance is only uh, disdained by people living in uh, steel cages. Agriculture is actually a major emission sector. I mean, agriculture is something between 23 and 40% of current emissions. Um, and it's slated to grow, especially actually in the processing and transport of agricultural products. Uh, and it's not only that. Agriculture is, it could be an, uh, analogized to a human slash natural blanket over the natural landscape, right? That it's this kind of blanket um, a varying thickness spread over much of the non-human biosphere, right? Except for the oceans. The oceans too have issues. Um, you know, then, then you need to get your agriculture right if you want a sustainable human interaction with non-human nature. Um, so you, you have these huge crises. I mean, you have crises linked to the destruction of aquifers. You have agriculture, especially linked to the biodiversity crisis, right? Through uh, clear cutting, through deforestation, through hunting of animals, through the destruction of habitats, through uh, especially, especially, especially the overuse or use at all of pesticides, which lead to uh, an apocalypse for insects and birds, right? Um, never mind something absolutely just catastrophic, like phosphate production for, um, for ammonium and uh, for fertilizers in a, in a place like Tunisia, which just has led to the absolute devastation of the seaside oasis of Gabis which is, I think, the world's only seaside oasis um, with just huge consequences. Kind of, it's like a waste zone over there. Now, uh, so agriculture is causing all of these problems, not least the emissions themselves, right? And it's also producing problems for humans in terms of cancer, um, in terms of especially malnutrition, right? Something that we uh, don't talk about enough and is that what we eat is actually linked to our agriculture. The, the modern wheats are basically... 
uh, are deprived of many of the nutritional elements in the traditional wheats. And also it meant a flattening of cereal consumption itself into things like, okay, wheat, corn, soy, uh, and maybe some barley, right? Whereas people used to, um, and still do, in fact, I mean, eating sorghum, eating a much wider variety of barley, eating corns of a million different colors. So it's these processes, these flattenings that actually lead to a destruction of the nutritional intake of people, first on that level, right? On, on the simple basic uh, chemical makeup of the crops themselves, but also what the crops are processed into, right? You know, if you go into the supermarket, market, you can pick up a North American supermarket. You can pick up practically anything. It's going to say it has like some form of soy and corn derived input in it in its ingredient list. You're like, huh? You know, it's practically like you eat an apple and suddenly it has like high fructose corn syrup in it. You're like, what the fuck? Right? Uh, you know, you find things that just you're, you're shocked to find um, the, these inputs into them. And they're very unhealthy, right? They're extremely unhealthy for human beings. If you really deal in a just way with the agrarian question, that is the, the cluster of crises, questions, contradictions, and problems that are clustered around agriculture, right? Um, if you do that in a good way, one, uh, a good agriculture will basically have uh, be not only zero emissions, because of course you're just, you know, a good agriculture, you're just cycling um, carbon dioxide and oxygen, right? I mean, you're, you're not adding. Right. The adding comes basically from fossil fuels um, and the destruction of carbon stocks in the soil. But if you're not doing that, if you're doing a form of farming, which actually adds carbon dioxide to the soil and protects topsoil and also adds uh, soil, soil buildup can actually be very rapid is a almost limitless way to increase the amount of carbon dioxide stored in the soil. And if at the same time you are s storing more carbon dioxide in plants themselves that are perennials as opposed to annuals. That is, there's experiments with perennial cereal crops going on uh, in the southern U.S., but also you can interplant cereals with trees, trees then um, that were in places where there used to just be uh, annual cereals, that is, cereals that you have to replant every year, send down deep uh, root structures, and also w would uh, store carbon dioxide in the, in the body of the tree itself. I mean, that's what wood is, right? Then you actually make carbon, you make agriculture carbon negative. Right. This is the upshot. Now, what is the potential of that? The truth is that we have no idea what uh, the potential is and what the costs and benefits truly are. I mean, we know that a, a substantial amount of agriculture can be converted not just to carbon neutrality, but to carbon negativity with positive impacts on livelihoods, more or less, that productivity uh, per unit of land although not necessarily per unit of labor, can increase. Uh, the quality of the food will increase and you'll have better biodiversity outcomes and so forth, right? I mean, this has been modeled very extensively. There's other effects too that I think are part of an even more ambitious uh, utopias planning. But I think people would love, and this is, I think, how you get buy-in for such a heavy emphasis on agriculture. I mean, there's no reason you cannot have uh, trees, including fruit and nut trees, all over cities. I mean, the reason you don't want them right now. It's because the air is too polluted and because you have too many cars. I mean, you do not want a, an apple tree or a walnut tree in a city where there's cars going by all the time, uh, spitting out fumes, right? You're going to poison the plant. But if you move to a clean energy mass transit system, then you can have lots of uh, fruit trees and nut trees within cities. Um, and you can also have fruit and vegetable gardens in cities. Not to the point of forgetting that they're cities, which means they should be uh, dense in terms of their populations, but you improve the air quality through all these measures. You actually reduce heating and cooling costs because the, the cities will be um, 
cooler in the summer and they'll be warmer in the winter. And this is the case across the entire world, right? And you actually can create kind of these kind of mini oases for biodiversity that actually assist um, that, that are definitely sufficient for birds and for insects and also can be uh, migration routes for slightly larger animals. So you kind of blur a little bit this idea of uh, the rural, urban, the city, the country, right? And I think people would adore that. No one wants to live in a concrete city, right? I mean, this is why uh, uniformly, actually, if you look at science fiction dystopias, right, they're, con- they're concrete megacities, Right, they all look like that. Go look at, uh, you know, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Go look at uh, Judge Dredd. Right. I mean, this is all these dystopic futures are concrete mega cities. Right. And it's because people understand this is a crappy way to live. Right. Um, and people would prefer a different way of living. You know, this is a way of changing the texture of social and ecological planning, so that it benefits poor people, middle class people, benefits the ecology, and it does so synergistically, right? I think this is something that really should be front and center in terms of making uh, people's Green New Deal, whatever you want to call it, meaningful to uh, people, especially in the North. Yeah, and I I think, I mean, especially food always seems like a very good way to connect with people as well, because it's so fundamental, isn't it? It's at every stage, it's, it's our engagement with nature, but it's also just what we put in our bodies and it's tastes we enjoy and and we can see it in our back gardens and everything else. It feels like a much more concrete way in. And I, and I found it astonishing, yes, especially in, in some of that carbon drawdown stuff that we're talking about, building these carbon dioxide scrubbers for insane amounts of money that are going to take a fraction of the carbon dioxide out of the air. And all this stuff is, is kind of there, and the knowledge is there, and the repositories of knowledge are there already to do these things at a much greater scale than, than these newfangled machines are, are capable of in any sort of realistic near-term future. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we have these amazing machines. We have these amazing, sophisticated, uh, stunningly engineered, low-cost machines for pulling carbon dioxide uh, from the atmosphere and converting it into uh, medium to long-term stored uh, carbon. And, you know, they're just called uh, prairies and uh, oak trees and so forth. Right. They have names that are well known to everybody. And these are, uh, unfortunately, receive a lot less attention across the Euro-American political spectrum than these uh, technologies, which are actually only being used right now to enhance oil recovery by the oil corporations. They use it for uh, enhanced oil recovery. They pump it back into the wells to enhance their recovery. I just want to I want to finish up by asking you ideas on how we support that transition to the planks of the People's Green New Deal that you lay out. And you're quite explicit that this book is not a roadmap. And I suppose especially thinking that most listeners will be in the north, what that kind of solidarity with with the south means as well. I think it's at the current moment, it's extremely contextual. Like what political space are you in? And I don't mean you, you, I mean the, the listener, you, what, what political space are you in and how is ecology in turn entering that political space? You know, why aren't people discussing climate debt whenever someone or whenever someone discusses something like simply says, well, let's discuss debt cancellation. Then we say, okay, why aren't we fighting for climate debt? Why isn't climate debt front and center on uh, the program of whatever political formation you're already a part of, right? Why not? 
and it, and it's also, I mean, I think there's a lot to do in terms of education. I think it's a, you know, people sometimes ask me this. They're like, this program you're proposing is, is wild and ambitious. And I'm like, well, of course it is. I mean, I'm not really proposing a program. I'm proposing elements towards a converse, collective conversation about a program, right? But, you know, the, the question you ask me is, in some sense, it's a question. It's actually a political question. Which, what are we going to do politically? Okay, well, Corbyn and Bernie failed, right? Uh, they were destroyed but they also failed. Now, why didn't it work is a complex question, right? I mean, Corbyn was really destroyed in a way that Bernie was not destroyed, right? Corbyn could have been, uh, could also have been a central person to fight for these types of just ecological programs uh, and uh, was involved in that to some extent. I mean, there was labor for, uh, I think, for a People's Green New Deal, which is putting out a a functional program, but he didn't. And so now we are, I mean, so what is the nature of our political collectives and how can they enter political struggles, right? Now, this is where things get very local. Municipal politics is a place where people can meaningfully enter in terms of, you know, advocating for planting um, labor-intensive and attention-intensive flood control technologies, right? And also advocating for, uh, you know, and using uh, rain barrels and using earthworks and using greenery to control floods, right? This is all ways of doing things which at least make it easier to advocate for a just transition for the third world because you're implementing policies that are less reliant on colonial looting. And if you braid that with building consciousness about the colonial looting and about anti-imperialism, you begin to create, you help to create the consciousness that uh, one, uh, that, that a just future does not rely on exploiting the third world. And also that this can be made clear to people in their day to day, right? Or something like, you know, why, why isn't the state subsidizing uh, high speed trains, Right. Or even low-speed trains. Like, I mean, instead, it's encouraging people to both fly and use automobiles. I mean, the situation now is crazy in Britain, what I've seen some of the prices for trains, right? It's cheaper to jump on an easy jet, right? So, of course, you can talk about that. And then the same time you're talking about that, you talk about climate debt. So it's about raising the consciousness that these struggles are linked. I mean, so how to link those struggles? I mean, it's clear if you had a great political party that could do it, that would be fantastic. But I don't we don't have that political vehicle. So uh, how to constitute that political vehicle? Um, I don't know. But I think agitation and and always keeping people aware that those struggles can be linked and should be linked and think about ways to collectively think about ways to link in those struggles, I think, is, I think, very important. You've been listening to Spoken Earth. Edited and produced by Uli Matson, music by Uli Matson, performed along with Ben O'Connor and Amir Shoat. It's a Lacuna podcast, and we'll be back with more soon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.